Uh, it is a real pleasure to be here today. I wasn't even sure that this many people would show up to this, which leads me to believe that um, Jason may be somewhat famous. Um, let me begin by apologizing, because you will notice uh, conspicuously that there is no PowerPoint, and I should have realized that coming to a science conference and not bringing the appropriate technology was anathema. But uh, we'll go forward anyways and see what we can endure. Um, throughout the second half of the 20th century, the concept of complementarity was a cornerstone of the evangelical engagement with science, drawing on insights from quantum physics, leading evangelical science in both Britain and America argued that science and religion offered distinct perspectives of the natural world that were reconcilable if recognized as complementary descriptions rather than mutually exclusive claims. Though not without critics, this logic was employed by a majority of the most conspicuous evangelical scientists who attempted to ease the tension between Christianity and modern science. Complementarity, they argued, avoided reductionism by affirming the validity of the perspectives and claims of both science and theology without rejecting either. At the 2009 annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion, Cambridge theologian Sarah Coakley criticized the use and questioned the use of complementarity. Rather than fostering genuine dialogue between science and theology, she argued complementarity treats science and religion as distinct, unaffected categories and allows for fully reductionist views of the issues. This paper asked to what extent Professor Coakley is correct and whether complementarity continues to have any value in the 21st century. An answer will be sought by attempting to recall the context within which the idea was developed. In evaluating the development and past value of complementarity, it is important to recall two points. First is the dramatic decline in science and faith dialogue among conservative evangelicals in the early part of the 20th century. Second is the intellectual and scientific context within which the ideas developed. First, between the 1880s and 1920s, notable scientific and religious leaders strove to overcome the apparent antithesis between science and religion that had characterized the preceding decades. Yet beginning in the 1920s and extending through the next decade, a resurgence of social and religious conservatism undermined efforts at reconciliation. Economic depression, the growing threat of war, and theological responses to liberalism led conservatives to abandon their efforts to integrate science and theology. At its best, this trend led scientists to ignore religion and compelled theologians to turn their attention towards more fundamental issues. At its worst, the events triggered a bitter, a bitter struggle for the right to define reality. Second, Appreciating the scientific and intellectual context within which complementarity became popular requires one to, to recall the dramatic professionalization of science that occurred in the century before 1950. The events, which are so well known to most of you, affected a dramatic transfer transformation in both the scientific enterprise and the view of science more broadly. Scientific discoveries and technological advances amounted to a sweeping revision of our understanding of the universe and helped propel science as a major force in popular thought. As England and America became increasingly dependent upon scientific developments, research was granted unprecedented support, and science was increasingly heralded as, one of the, as the most reliable source for truth. The prestige science earned during this period is hard to overstate. In 1931, Sir William Dampier, fellow of the 
Royal Society expressed the views of many when he declared that, quote, the vast and imposing structure of modern science is perhaps the greatest triumph of the human mind, end quote. Perhaps the most dramatic example of the faith in science came at the British Association for the Advancement of Science Conference held at the Royal Institution in London in 1941. Confronted by the immediate realities of war, researchers from 22 nations met to ask what science should do to begin healing the world once the fighting had ended. In his report of the events of the meeting, J.G. Crowther boldly stated, if democracy does not learn to seek guidance from and utilize science, then it will not survive. Science, which had only recently emerged from the shadows of other disciplines, was increasingly recognized as essential for future prosperity. Scientists were not alone in touting their own significance. As the 1939 World's Fair in New York made clear, political leaders boasted that modern knowledge and technology ensured the promise of a brighter tomorrow. Science was equally praised by many of the leading philosophers of the day and by none more so than the logical positivists who claimed that anything that could not be verified empirically was metaphysics and by definition, in the words of A.J. Eyre, the leading figure of the movement in the English language, quote, neither true nor false but literally senseless. The philosopher, he wrote, is not in a position to furnish speculative truths which would compete with the hypotheses of science but is to clarify the propositions of science by exhibiting their logical relationships and to define the symbols which occur in them. Such was the level of difference, deference offered to science. It is true that the scientific establishment was not uniformly materialistic. Some, such as Arthur Eddington, the professor of astronomy at Cambridge University, maintained a robust Christian faith. Yet there was a prevailing naturalistic mood among many, and a growing number who claimed that religion itself was a product of the natural world. The avowed humanist Julian Huxley could hardly have been clearer when he declared in 1923 that, quote, God is an inevitable product of biological evolution arising when the human type of mind first came into being and taking shape in, a, in form as a def definite God or gods, close quote. British embryologist C.H. Waddington drew heavily on Sigmund Freud's thought to claim that science had reached the point at which it could function as a religion and do a better job. Quote, science is not ethically neutral, he argued. It has, in fact, something to say about the most important questions of the world and could therefore be a candidate for the position of the superego. He continued, and I'll quote him at length, one might have a scientific society officially based on the practice of empirical reason, but the other side of man's nature would have to be satisfied by a belief in some authority, a thrill for some romance. We have now reached the conclusion that science can also provide their thrill and this authority. Science by itself is able to provide mankind with a way of life which is firstly self-consistent and harmonious, and secondly, free for the exercise of that objective reason on which our material progress depends. So far as I can see, the scientific attitude of mine is the only one which is, at the present day, adequate in both these respects." Close quote. In other words, science could make traditional religion irrelevant by dispelling its false views while providing its psychological benefits. Such was the attitude at the end of World War II. While most conservative religious leaders were ignoring or attacking modern science, scientists were increasingly looked to as the source for useful knowledge. Science had won the war, would help establish the peace, 
and would be essential for rebuilding societies that had been destroyed. The concept of complementarity came from the work of Danish physicist Niels Bohr and his attempt to explain how mutually exclusive sets of experimental data could be equally true, though seemingly contradictory. He argued that the apparent contradiction implied by the use of competing models for understanding some quantum particles, most famously light, can be reconciled as long as one understands that the models measure distinct aspects of the object of study and that each model is unable to detect and may obscure the data of the other. The wave model can only detect the wave-like aspects of light. The particle model can only, only the particle-like aspects. Neither model disproves the validity nor predicts the outcomes of the other. Complementarity was quickly applied to science-faith dialogue. Bohr recognized the implications of his ideas and attempted to establish complementarity as a new epistemological principle that could apply to a wild, wide range of disciplines, including religion. Some have found traces of complementarity in the metaphysical writings of A.N. Whitehead. Historian of science Peter Bowler has credited the theoretical chemist C.A. Colson as marking the new start, uh, a start in a new direction in science and faith dialogue and credits Colson's Science and Christian Belief of 1955 as the first significant discussion of complementarity within evangelicalism. Colson is an important figure in the story, and he is often remembered for his description of the differing perspectives of architectural drawings. Floor plans are different from elevations, he noted, and each elevation is different from the others. Still, they all describe the same building because they imagine the final product from distinct perspectives. Although they may seem at first to contradict, upon further investigation, they can be seen, they can be seen as being complementary. However, if one wishes to see the building before it's complete, one cannot simply lay the drawings on top of each other, but must use what he called an act of reflection to, imag to imagine the final product. It was through this act of reflection that one was able to reconcile science and theology. At the same time that Coulson was developing his views, a Scottish brain scientist named Donald Mackay, who we will hear much more about later, a younger colleague of Coulson's at the University of London at the time, was beginning to articulate similar views. Mackay and Coulson had much in common. They both denounced the God of the gaps mentality, that is, the idea that God could be found in those areas where science was ignorant. They considered science as a means of revelation, and they saw complementarity as a useful model for reconciling scientific and theological claims. Mackay has been remembered as the one who drew out fully the logical ramifications of complementarity. Scientists looked at the world as a self-consistent, closed physical system and attempted to understand the world on its own terms. Christians looked at the world as an open system with more processes and events occurring than meet the scientific eye. Only when accepting the validity of both perspectives could one avoid the potential conflict between them. For Mackay's work in neuroscience, this meant that it would be foolish to expect scientists to locate some aspect of the brain where physical laws were disobeyed, thus proving the mind as something other than a product of natural forces. The scientific understanding of the mind as a product of matter in motion was perfectly justified. The naturalist claim that it was merely such a product was not. As Mackay wrote, the scientific method has been compared to a net which can give knowledge only of those aspects of, aspects of reality which it, which it can catch. The kind of description which it can give passes by spiritual truths. 
The Christian's belief that God controls the universe, for example, has never had any bearing on scientifically ascertained possibilities, probably, sorry, far less any inconsistency with them. But there was more to complementarity than merely protecting the Christian view of the world. Like Colson, Mackay argued that complementarity allowed one to achieve the fullest understanding of the world. I will quote him at length. To keep scientific and Christian doctrines rigidly apart would be silly as well as potentially dishonest. To try to make them into one by chopping bits from each and pasting them together or by treating them as rival ways of giving identical information would be equally to miss the point. We can come to relate them properly only by holding both constantly together in our minds until little by little there comes to us some glimmering of that greater whole of which they present complementary aspects, the activity and character of God himself. Not God seen only in the gaps of the scientific picture, not God deduced only as the conclusion of a scientific argument, but God revealed as the author of the whole story. End quote. Thus, Complementarity not only justified the Christian and scientific views of the world, it also suggested a proper way of relating the two. Mackay went on to emphasize the different levels from which science and theology achieved their conclusions, and he saw this as an important distinction between himself and Colson. While Colson's example focused on differing perspectives based on the direction from which one addressed the subject, Mackay emphasized differing logical levels or planes. Two people, Micaiah argued, might examine a subject from the same direction and still arrive at equally valid, though vastly different interpretations, because each was asking a different set of questions. Each was applying a different kind of logic to the situation. Take a simple math problem on a board, he often noted. A chemist could describe with complete accuracy the chemical composition of the writing without ever attempting to discern the equation present. The message that would be plain to everyone else that 2 plus 2 equals 4 would be superfluous to the chemist's examination. It would be foolish, Mackay would say, to argue that because the chemist missed the meaning of the message that his analysis was wrong. It would be equally foolish to assume that the message was somehow less true than the chemist's conclusion. If one was to fully understand the writing on the board, both views must be considered. To fail to accept either one, Mackay insisted, led to reductionism, what Mackay called the fallacy of nothing buttery. Quote, the idea that because in one sense, at one level, or viewed from one angle, there is nothing there but chalk, therefore it is unnecessary, it makes no sense, it is superfluous to talk about what is there in any other terms. End quote. By the early 1970s, Mackay had labeled his own emphasis on the different levels of analysis as hierarchical complementarity. For the generation of American and British evangelical scientists working between 1955 and 1985, complementarity became an effective means for reconciling science and theology. By the late 1950s, complementarity essentially became the official view among members of the British Research Scientist Christian Fellowship, which is now called Christians in Science. This was due in no small part to Mackay's popularity among British evangelical scientists and to a series of publications aimed for a popular audience, including Where Science and Faith Meet and Science and Faith Today, both BBC broadcasts that were published in 1953, Science and Christian Faith Today, published in 1960, and Christianity and a Mechanistic Universe, 1965. 
The acceptance of complementarity among Americans, namely among members of the ASA, is a more complicated story. Although there were references to complementarity as early as the 1950s, the idea became broadly popular within the ASA only after the publication of three important works. The first was Scientific Enterprise in Christian Faith, which was produced, which was the product of an important, though largely forgotten, international meeting of evangelical scientists in Oxford in 1965. The meeting was hosted by the RSCF and funded by Norman Lee, a Canadian engineer of vigorous evangelical faith and considerable generosity. Several key ASA leaders attended the meeting, including Richard Bube, Walter Hearn, and Elving Anderson, who is with us today. Professor Anderson was president of the ASA at the time. The meeting laid the foundation for an enduring relationship between the ASA and the RSCF that continues today and helped make Mackay and other RSCF members highly esteemed among the ASA leaders. The next publications were both by Donald Mackay, both published in 1974, an article in the journal Zygon entitled Complementarity in Scientific and Theological Thinking and an IVP publication, The Clockwork Image. As with nearly every other topic, not all ASA or RSCF members accepted complementarity. But those who did accept it often exemplified two characteristics. First, they were staunch defenders of both science and the Bible. And second, they accepted the epistemological limitations of both. That is, they rejected reductionism, whether biblical or scientific. I will ask you to accept the first claim in order to develop time to devote time to the second. Accepting the sorry, accepting the epistemological limitations of science meant understanding that the methodological reductionism science requires does not necessitate philosophical reductionism. Frank H. T. Rhodes, for example, then professor of geology at the University College of Swansea, argued that science provided an accurate mechanistic understanding of the world, but insisted that it remains, quote, only one view, only one description, only one model, only one interpretation, because it is limited by its own self-chosen method, abstractions, and restrictions. It can never claim to do justice to the whole of reality, close quote. In a 1952 BBC broadcast, R.L.F. Boyd, later Sir Robert Boyd, the patriarch of the British space program, made a similar point when he argued that the Aristotelian distinction between efficient and final causes made reconciliation between science and Christianity possible. There are two kinds of explanations for every event, he insisted. Some answer the question how, others the question why. The difference between the questions reflects the differences between the scientific and Christian agendas. Trouble is, Boyd wrote, that we have now swung to the opposite extreme and have become so impressed with the usefulness of asking how that we are liable to forget ever to ask why, close quote. Recognizing the epistemological limitations of science meant, to use Mackay's metaphor, accepting that the scientist's net is unable to catch all truth. Accepting the limitations of scripture often entailed moving beyond a common sense literalistic view of the Bible. For some, this meant remembering Calvin's accommodationism. For others, it meant appreciating the literary, poetic, or symbolic meaning of the Bible. For a growing number of ASA members during the 1970s, it meant distinguishing between the revelational and non-revelational aspects of Scripture. This topic reveals an important difference between the context of the ASA and the RSCF. Among the many important differences between 20th century British and American evangelicalism, were the different approaches to scripture that developed at the end of the 19th century, 
particularly regarding the inerrancy of Scripture. Stephen Holmes' recent study in this area is particularly illuminating. In America, he notes, theologians at Princeton Seminary, especially A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield, helped elevate the latent belief in the accuracy of the Bible to a full-blown articulation of plenary inspiration. As a result, inerrancy became the primary, the primary lens through which to understand Scripture. These views remained popular among American evangelicals throughout the 20th century, with the fullest expression coming through a series of international conferences on the Bible produced, that produced the so-called Chicago Statements in 1978, 82, and 86. The situation in the UK was considerably different. By 1900, the majority of British evangelical scholars had rejected the need to defend the Bible as completely free of error. As a result, they gave more attention to the inspiration and authority of the Bible in matters related to faith and conduct than on its inerrancy. The result, Holmes argues, is that 20th century American evangelicals tended to see the Bible as a collection of facts to be believed, while British evangelicals saw the Bible as rules to be obeyed. There are, of course, important exceptions on both sides of the Atlantic. Nevertheless, both the relative ease with which British evangelicals accepted evolution and the anti-evolutionary impulses in American fundamentalism may be seen as a logical outcome of a particular understanding of the nature of the Bible. The British view of Scripture, combined with Mackay's complementarity, helped the RSCF develop a clear approach for relating science and the Bible. As Christians, they felt little need to align particular passages of Scripture with specific scientific ideas, while as scientists, they were free to pursue their research without fear of undermining theology. In a 1952 BBC broadcast, RSCF founder Oliver Barclay expressed this view clearly. There was a time, he, he stated, quote, when the relationship between science and faith was, gen was generally thought of in terms of disagreement about matters of fact. End quote. Such attempts, he insisted, missed the point. Efforts to align specific verses of the particular scientific conclusions fail by trying to solve the problem the wrong way. The goal is not to reconcile contradictory claims about creation. Quote, the real problem is how to reconcile two different habits of mind. Close quote. How to appreciate two distincts of the same event. For the ASA, it was already noted that key publications helped determine the timing of the group's acceptance of complementarity. <clears throat> key also for this acceptance was the ASA's own wrestling with the question of biblical interpretation. Between 18, 1960 and 1980, the affiliation experienced a dramatic, sometimes painful, and often hotly contested shift in its general approach to the Bible. The transition was largely led by Richard Bube's distinction between revelational and non-revelational aspects of Scripture. The results of these events was that by 1980, the majority of the ASF had nearly abandoned strict inerrancy. It's not surprising then to find that as increasing numbers of ASA members moved further from the Hodge-Warfield understanding, they also developed a greater appreciation for complementarity. These generalizations, however, are not meant to suggest that the ASA unanimously accepted complementarity. In 1975, a reviewer of the clockwork image criticized Mackay for not doing more to prove the Christian perspective as essential. The review described complementarity as an illegitimate quote, an illegitimate tool with which to loosen the grip of the clockwork image on the minds of modern men, end quote. There is a sense in which this critique is valid, but it missed a fundamental point. 
Mackay was not trying to prove the Christian view any more than he was trying to prove the, Christ, the scientific view. Neither was he trying to prove that one of the views was somehow incomplete without reference to the other. In fact, Mackay's logic insisted that each perspective remain self-consistent and able to provide its own complete view without appealing to the other. The most thorough analysis and critique of complementarity came from J.W. Haas. In 1983, Haas published two articles that systematically analyzed complementarity. The first examined the concept broadly. The second focused on Mackay's ideas. Haas conclu concluded by suggesting that Mackay offered, quote, an imaginative approach, end quote, that avoided many of the areas found in other attempts to reconcile Christianity and science. Yet he criticized Mackay for not being more philosophically consistent. It appears, Haas wrote, that an exposition of the ontological epistemological status of complementarity is needed before a full evaluation of this approach can be made, end quote. Haas seemed to desire the level of certainty about conclusions of complementarity that exceeded Mackay's intentions. We could go on throughout the 20th century and trace a few more. But key ASA leaders, including Richard Bube, came along later and asked the question, even if Haas is right, even if complementarity fails in its philosophical consistency, what other choice do we have? He said, we have a duty when talking about things that are unknown to speak about them in metaphors and analogies, to talk about them what they're like as opposed to what they actually are. I'm going to give two quick conclusions and then we have time for some questions. The question is, what kind of conclusions can we make? The first is, I would probably this, that Professor Coakley's criticism of complementarity is accurate. Complementarity implies that one could hold a reductionist view. It's debatable, however, whether this is a weakness. It didn't seem one 50 years ago. The question is, is it one today? Second, examining the reception of complementarity unveils other difficulties that beg other questions. How reliable is the concept overall? How philosophically consistent does it need to be to be of value? Must one accept a neo-evangelical view of scripture to employ it? This question, by the way, I think is particularly important because it's an ongoing discussion on the ASA website today, began by Terry Gray, which we don't have time to go into. So the final question is simply this. If complementarity has lost its value, if it was good for a time, but now fails to take into account the new directions in science or theology, what's next? For those seeking to defend the validity of both the Bible and science, what, in the words of Dick Bube, what other choice do we have? So. The second paper in this session will raise many very similar points. It also concerns itself substantially with these issues. And for that reason, that's one of two reasons why I'd like to hold any questions until after the second paper. The other reason is I arrived five minutes late. That is my fault. It's not Mr. Rios's fault. I was reluctant to cut his paper off before 25 minutes because it wasn't his fault. And so blame me if we have not sufficient time to discuss both papers again.